and it just everything about the business was optimized for them, not for shareholders. And you can just, I think customers can feel a difference. So I think that to me is like the, the lesson of my book, Anything You Want, is that generosity pays. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneur on Fire. You're listening to my friend, Ash Roy. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to ProductiveInsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. Derek Sivers was born in California and now lives in one of the most beautiful countries I've ever seen, New Zealand. He's a musician, an accidental entrepreneur, more on this shortly, and is the founder of CD Baby, which he sold for $22 million. He's one of the best writers I've come across on the internet and is a generous contrarian with an amazing ability to express incredibly useful ideas succinctly and impactfully. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Derek Sivers from Sivers.org, and we're going to talk about entrepreneurship, which will help you, our listener or viewer, to achieve business growth on your terms. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, Derek. Thanks, Ash. Thank you so much for being here. Derek, I've read just about all of your books. Uh, in fact, I've read all four of your books, and I've read some of them multiple times. You have created some outstanding content. If I'm not mistaken, when you wrote Anything You Want, which was the first book I've read, I think that was the one Seth Godin recommended you write. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. I Well, I sent him an email last night saying, I'm so excited. I'm interviewing Derek Sivers tomorrow. I believe you encouraged him to write Anything You Want. I love the book and I'm super excited. And he wrote straight back and he said, it's a great book. He's aces. So I was like, well, uh, <laughs> Seth Godin is one of my heroes. I started my entrepreneurial journey listening to Startup School 10 years ago. Seth doesn't even know this. He's somebody mm. I'm proud to call a friend. He's not my best friend, but we talk every now and then, and I'm very grateful to know him. Cool. He was also a guest on episode 200. Could you share with our listeners and our viewers the story of CD Baby and how you built CD Baby, focusing purely on the customer's needs and not obsessing mm. on profits or worse still, revenues? which is what most Silicon Valley types seem to obsess about. And you sold it for 22 million. So can you tell us that story? Yeah, well, first, I mean, don't get the wrong idea. I mean, I'm clearly not a Silicon Valley type. I was exactly. a musician in New York City uh, selling my own CD. So when I started, there was no CD baby. In fact, in 1997, there was no business anywhere on the internet that would sell your music unless you had a record deal already. And then your record label would take care of it through the major distributors. But if you were just an independent musician wanting to sell your music, there was nowhere that would sell it for you. So I just had to do it myself. So I built my own store. I got my own credit card merchant account, which was like $1,000 in setup fees and about three months of work. And I had to figure out how to program my own shopping cart from scratch because there was no PayPal back then. And uh, it was three months of hard work. And so after three months of work, I had a buy now button on my website. None of my musician friends had that because, yeah, I was the only one. After I did it, my musician friends in New York said, whoa, dude, can you sell my CD through your thing? And I went, huh, I guess I could. Sure, why not? And so I was just doing it as a favor to friends. It was not meant to be a business. That's the big difference is that I wasn't trying to make money. My full-time living 
was as a musician. And I didn't want anything to get in the way of me making music. So really just like as a hobby in my spare time, I would sell some of my friends' CDs. And then they told their friends about it. And pretty soon I was getting calls from strangers or friends of friends, you know, hey, my friend Dave said you could sell my CD and no problem. That's why it was an accidental business is I didn't want to have a business. So when I realized that I had accidentally started this business, I decided to make it like a utopian dream come true from a musician's point of view, right? Not from my point of view as a business owner. I didn't think of myself as a business owner. I thought of myself as a musician and I was doing something for my peers, right? So there are lots of examples of this, right? Like somebody is a bicycle aficionado and then someday they start their own bicycle company. They make what they would want to be like their dream bicycle that nobody else was making, right? Or they're pick anything else, you know, somebody has a, a love of something. If you really love something and then you get yourself into the position where, where now it's your job to make it, well, then of course you try to make it like your paradise utopian dream come true. So for myself as a musician, CD Baby was only ever meant to be a service that I was doing as a favor to my fellow musicians. I'm really glad you mentioned at the start that you're not the Silicon Valley type, because that is exactly what I want to shine a light on. I spoke at length about this with Rand Fishkin in episode 159, where we talked about his story and his book, Lost and Founder. External funding is something that seems to be celebrated in a lot of business communities. And to me, in a large proportion of cases, I think it's an opportunity for commiserations, not yeah. celebration, because you are effectively handing over control of your company, often to people who don't understand the business and understand how it's run. And within a few short months after the honeymoon period has passed, it's show me the money. And now all of a sudden you're bending over backwards, you're compromising service, you're compromising the business just so that you can show profits so that these yeah. people can justify the cash cow that they have supposedly acquired. Yeah. So I'm totally with you. And I don't speak from a place of complete ignorance because I suffered through a CPA in 1997 and then an MBA in 2004. And I'm very familiar with all the weasel words. And while I think there are some things to be gained out of an MBA, I'm not saying it's all bad. I am saying a lot of it is BS. And I want to call that out because I think that what you stand for and what you say rings very true to me. And this contrarian idea, which in my opinion shouldn't be contrarian, of a business mm. existing to provide some kind of a meaningful service to solve a problem for someone in society, not just to make profits, not mm -hmm. like we were taught in business school, the sole reason a business exists is for profit. Profit <laughs> is important, sure, but if it becomes purely profit-driven, then very quickly it loses its way. Would you agree? Completely. In fact, to me, that's just not enough motivation. I think early on, like straight out of high school, somewhere in there, I came up with a mission for myself. I shouldn't say a mission. I should call it a rule of thumb. Never do anything for the money. Right. And I've kept to that forever. Even when I was doing gigs as a musician, of course, I wouldn't have driven the five hours to do the gig if it didn't pay $300. So you could say I was doing it for the money, but not really. What I was really doing it for was the experience, the, the connections I would make from doing it, the, the ego boost to tell myself that, you know, I'm a professional musician. These are the real reasons. And the $300 was just a side effect, right? So 
as for CD Baby, I mean, here, I'll tell you a little story by example. Please. Is when CD Baby was in full swing, and I mean, like, it was the largest seller of independent music on the web, let's say around 2002 or so, I was speaking at a conference where I was up on a panel with a few other people, and somebody in the audience raised their hand, got the microphone, and asked me this question in front of everybody. They said, okay, Derek, how do you deal with PayPal or musicians just selling their CDs directly from their own site? What are you doing to prevent that? Because, you know, if every musician did that, you would be out of business. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> I said, I would love it if every musician was able to sell their music directly from their own site and not need me anymore. That would be great. And he said, but then you would go out of business. I said, yeah, that would be wonderful. That would mean that they don't need us anymore. I would love that, <laughs> you know? So I was hoping that CD Baby would go out of business because it was just me. I was doing it as a favor to the musician community. So if it went out of business, that would mean like, you know, mission accomplished. This right. is no longer needed. So I really think of a business as like a bandage, right? Like if there's a wound, it needs a bandage. So if there's something that, like that's lacking or something that's needed, right? You you put a bandage on it. But I don't understand this mindset when people say, "I, I want to make a business. I just don't know what it is." <laughs> I think that's like like it's like somebody saying, "I, I want to wear a bandage. I just don't have any wounds yet." Uh, <laughs> so it, it's weird to like I you know I, I just want to have a solution. I just don't know what the problem is. Yeah, I mean the the whole reason the thing existed was to solve a problem for the musician community, and maybe the. This came from a place of abundance, you know? I mean, I had other things I wanted to be doing. I wanted to be making music. I wanted to be producing records. I wanted to be touring. And I kind of somewhat sadly let go of that to do CD Baby instead. Mm. So if CD Baby would have gone out of business, I would have happily gone right back to producing records. So it kept the incentives aligned. And what's really interesting, and this is to me kind of like the Tao of business, and maybe part of what my book called Anything You Want is about, is that in a counterintuitive way, I think customers can tell when they are your top priority, when you're doing everything for them and not for your investors uh, or not for yourself. They can tell, right? So just two years after I started CD Baby, Amazon got into the same field, right? Like when I first started CD Baby, Amazon was just a bookstore. And two years later, or let's say one year later, they started selling music, but even then it was only from the major distributors. So about two years later, they started selling music directly from musicians. Like any musician could set up their own album for sale on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh no, I'm toast, you know? Okay, it's time to wrap up. Amazon's in the same business. There's no way I'll last. But musicians kept preferring CD Baby over Amazon because they could tell that I had their best interests at heart. They liked the way that I communicated with them. They liked the way that they could call and get me on the phone. And that just everything about the business was optimized for them, not for shareholders. And you can just, I think customers can feel a difference. So I think that to me is like the, the lesson of my book, Anything You Want, is that generosity pays. I'm so glad you said that word, because I was going to ask you a question about that next. But let me complement your story with a little insight of my own. As you were speaking and you were sharing that story, I was thinking back to my membership program. I have a membership program where I mentor some business owners from around the world and I help them to achieve independence and ideally build a profitable business. And I was thinking, you know, one way to increase the revenues is to increase tenure. But as you were speaking, I realized, but wait a minute, that would serve my interests. And sure, I would love to increase my revenue and my profit. But in a way, it's good that the tenure is, it's not several years, it's around about a year. 
it's probably a good thing the tenure is what it is because the business owner is becoming independent mm. and the membership has come to its natural conclusion. Mm -hmm. So to try and cram, to try and keep the member for longer is a classic example of being obsessed with the money, but not being driven by the purpose. What's the purpose? The purpose is to help the business owner. When they're free, if they can get free in a month, then good for them, right? Yeah. Could you imagine a school that was incentivized for their students not to graduate, but to stay in the school forever? Right. Well, there are private schools in this country that are about not necessarily extending the tenure of this student, but maximizing the revenue by maximizing the value of their brand. And in fact, I can say that about some business schools where they are all about the brand. And because they have a brand, they are able to attract high caliber candidates. They actually have what I would call a selection bias. High caliber candidates are the only ones who get into the business school. So then the ones who end up graduating end up with higher incomes and the business school can claim that their incomes have gone up since they joined the business school. But my argument is they would have done that anyway, because they're hardworking people mm. and they self-selected into the brand. So the brand then becomes a filtering mechanism. It's like a lot of people say Olympic swimmers have great physiques, but it's actually people with great physiques that get to the Olympics. And mm. so it's, it's actually a selection bias. All right. So nice. just coming back to the generosity thing in episode 200, which by the way, you can access at productiveinsights.com slash 200. I spoke to Seth Godin and I said to him, you know, one of the least used words in marketing, I believe is empathy. And it's probably one of the most important. And fortunately, well, he, well, he agreed with me. But then he said something that really struck me. And he said, another important word is generosity. Now you just said mm. that word as well, which really struck a chord with me. In your book, Anything You Want, I think it was, you talk about the importance of approaching the market from a space of abundance and everything falls into place as opposed to approaching things from a space of scarcity. Mm -hmm. Now I have a tendency because of my own mental baggage to approach things from a space of scarcity. I'm, I have mindset issues. I've been working on it for years and years. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? How do we approach the world from a space of abundance, particularly for people who have a tendency, whether it's a genetic tendency or whether it's chemical imbalance or whatever it is, some people have a tendency to have a negative bias. How does one approach the world from that generosity. I mean, you give mm. away all the proceeds from your books mm -hmm. to charity. I admire that. How do you do that? Don't you worry about what if there's not enough money? No, I think it all depends who you're comparing yourself against. So think of the woe of the silver medal winner of anything at the Olympics. They must be thinking of how if they could have been 20 milliseconds faster, they could have been the gold medal winner. Damn it, damn it, damn it. The silver medal winner can't help but to compare themselves to the gold medal winner. On the other hand, the bronze probably has a very thankful attitude because like, yes, if I was 20 milliseconds slower, I wouldn't have been up here on the podium at all. I would have no medal. But yes, I made it that extra little 20 millisecond push and that got me the bronze medal. They're comparing their situation to the next lower tier, which is no metal at all. So I compare myself always to my musician friends, 
my artist friends, my writer friends that are struggling to make a few hundred dollars. And um, I just feel super lucky all the time. Very, I don't know what word you want to use, fortunate, privileged, etc. All those kinds of words that I was able to do anything at all. Like just when I was running CD Baby and I was making a thousand dollars a month, sitting at my computer, making a website, helping my musician friends. And not only was I helping them getting wonderful thanks every day, like, oh my God, thank you. This is, you know, made my life so much easier. This is so great. I'm so glad you exist, which I mean, that's like, you know, better than money to hear that. But then I'd also come out with a thousand dollars profit at the end of the month. And that was just a great feeling. So was I yearning to be a billionaire? No, I was just really happy to have my thousand dollars. And then when it was like $10,000 a month, I'm like, oh my God, $10,000 a month just helping musicians. This is amazing. You know, and then when it was more than that, you know, just, so I think I was just always comparing myself downward and just feeling like I'm one of the lucky ones. And what do you do when you're one of the lucky ones? You share it, you relax. You just like, I'm in an abundant situation. Like you, you share it with people who weren't so lucky. And I, I don't mean that in like a give your proceeds to charity way. I just mean in like the way you run your business. So again, in my book, Anything You Want, there's a little story that a taxi driver in Las Vegas told me how... Oh, I love this one. Please tell us. Sure. I was just being conversational. I got in the taxi and I never go to Las Vegas, right? But I was there for a conference and get in the taxi and the driver looks like he's about 60. And I said, um, lived here a long time. He goes, oh yeah, 28 years. And I said, um... Well, a long time. I said, has it changed since then? And he kind of looks over his shoulder and said, hell yeah, it's changed. He said, you know, when the mob ran this town, it used to be fun. He said, when the mob ran the town, only two matters numbered. How much was coming in and how much was going out. As long as there was more coming in than going out, everybody was happy. He said, you know, you go to get your hot dog and you ask for some extra relish, some extra mustard. No problem. They put mustard and relish on it. He said, but then the MBAs came in. And they started trying to maximize every square foot of floor space, trying to analyze whether this square foot of floor space was making as much as that. He said, now they try to maximize it. I try to get my hot dog. I say, I want extra ketchup. They say, that's an extra 25 cents. He said, sucked all the fun out of this town. Yeah, I miss the mob. <laughs> and every time I ever walked into, say, a, uh, a restaurant or a, just any kind of retail shop that you'd walk in, and you'd see all these signs posted that were like very protective. It's like, all sales are final, no refund without a receipt, no this, no that. Yeah. And you just look at it. And whenever I see that, I think, yeah, this poor guy is paranoid and screwed and probably gets more screwed because he walks in every day with this attitude. You know, the, oh, these people, you can't trust anybody. They're all trying to rip me off. If they come in here trying to get a refund without a receipt, Screw them, no way, you know. And the other hand, you'd hear these tales of, there's a department store in, uh, in the US called Nordstrom. Oh, and yes. Nordstrom has this legendary return policy where they say that you could buy a shirt at a competitor at Sears, light it on fire, and then go to Nordstrom to return it and they would give you their money back. And they just do it because it's good PR for them. It makes people love them. It makes people feel better about shopping with them. And so I think just even as a teenager or as a, a musician in my early 20s, just looking out at the world, 
I felt like all of the examples of good customer service and just good warm and fuzzy feelings from mm -hmm. doing business with a company come from generosity. Like that's what it really comes down to. When a company is generous with me and doesn't get paranoid and stingy, well, then it makes me like them and it makes me happy to do business with them. You know, I mean, we are emotional beings, you know, we spend our money, but it's not, we're not just robots. We, we want to feel good about where we're spending our money. We like to feel that it's uh, congruent with who we are. I've noticed that the places that feel bad to do business with are the, the stingy ones or the ones trying to maximize every square foot of floor space, so to speak, even if it's just like an online service that you just get the feeling is like charging you the maximum possible subscription fee they can. And then it runs out after such and such and, you know, the constantly pushing you to pay more and just doesn't feel good to do business with those companies. And so, yeah, I, I think all of this was in the back of my head. And when I found myself in the accidental situation of, oops, I'm a business owner now, and to me, it was clear, like, I'm going to do it the good way. I'm going to be the generous type. And yeah, it also helped that I loved my customers. You know, my customers yeah. were my fellow musicians. They were my friends. A few things I just want to mention. First of all, I've listened to all, all of your audiobooks. And I love the audiobooks because you put so much of yourself into them especially when you tell that mob story, when you do the voice <laughs> of the cab driver or, you know, when you're telling the story about how your friend wanted to put his CD on your website and he goes, my friend Dave calls me up and goes, hey man, can you put my CD on the website? You know, it was just so, so entertaining and so beautifully done. So I love that. Kudos to you for doing that. Just want to bring out some points you made. Framing. You know, one great thing I took away from what you just told me was, if you want to change your attitude or your approach to the world, then change your framing. And I actually remember mm. Ali Abdal talking about this, and I know you were on his podcast. I've been following Ali's work for a long time. And I think he mentioned that his coach talks about comparing yourself to those less fortunate rather than constantly comparing yourself to those who are more fortunate than you. And as a society, I think we've become a little bit obsessed with outcomes and results and goals. But we've forgotten, it's particularly post-industrial revolution, I think, we've forgotten that the journey is actually important. It matters probably more than the destination because by definition, most goals and destinations are fleeting. So if we were to enjoy the journey, and as James Clear says, he was on episode 175, he talks about changing one word in the sentence rather than saying, I have to do this. He's mm. like, I get to do this. And that's a great way to reframe pretty quickly. So framing helps to create this attitude of abundance and an attitude of humility, which I think is also lacking. We are in this culture of either you're the gold medalist and that is the only valid position to be and everything else is just rubbish. And we even remunerate people that way. Incentivization happens that way. The gold medalist takes pretty much all the winnings and the silver medalist Oh, too bad, so sad. Maybe you try again. It's mm. kind of like that, isn't it? Well, sorry to interrupt. No, I mean, um, I think that's a misconception. Okay. I think that there are plenty of people making a damn good living being the bronze medalist or even being, you know, the sixth runner up. That you don't have to be the number one 
most famous, most noteworthy, leading, blah, 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 you can be just in the mix and happy and fine. Think of somebody who's like a uh, cognitive behavioral therapist helping somebody get over their fears or something like that. Right. They don't aspire to be the best. I am the best therapist in the world. You know, it's like they're serving their community. They're based in Boston or Helsinki or Sao Paulo. And they're as a culture, as a culture, do we promote that? And do we put that up on the pedestal like we do people on Instagram who are trying to show this unrealistically wonderful life? You say we, but I mean, some do, but you can choose to ignore that. You know, you don't have to buy into all of today's current trends and follow what all the kids are following and then look at that and think I need to be in there. You can just look inward to yourself, to your own emotions, and notice what makes you happiest. Yes. And so I think that's what I was doing with my business is Yes. I saw, you know, when I started CD Baby, it was at the very beginning of the dot-com boom. And so all around me, I was living in New York City at the time, all around me, lots of my friends were suddenly being handed 20 million and 100 million dollars and they were miserable because suddenly they had a boss they were answerable to the men in suits that handed them that money and is and were demanding to you know all these mba terms that you know and i don't you know talking talking and you're not missing much they they use the letter q a lot q2 we're getting our q3 round of our series a of financing and blah 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 and I didn't even understand what they were talking about, but they seemed miserable. Whereas I was living up in Woodstock, New York, running a little record store out of my house, answerable to nobody, just pleasing my musicians that were gushing their thanks to me every day. And I was making $10,000 a month and I was happy. So I had no desire to be the number one. You know? You've walked a very rare path or the relatively unbeaten path. And most people that I've come across in social media, which influences a lot of us today, mm-hmm. is trying to drive people towards the gold medal when I'm trying to say, I'm, what I'm trying to bring out in this conversation is the bronze medal is perfectly okay. As Seth Godin mm-hmm. said to me, and I love this, he said, more is not always better. Mm-hmm. And enough is a perfectly fine goal to have. Yeah, enough. Yeah. I mean, we're saying the same thing. I just want to emphasize that I think it's the same machine that's trying to get you to buy McDonald's Big Macs or trying to get you to upgrade your iPhone the day the new one comes out. Right. It's the same machine that's also trying to get you to be the next Facebook. Yes. Instead of just serving your community. It is that, um, what do you call that, mimetic desire, Rene Girard, that kind of like trying to do what the, what society is telling you you should want. And so I don't think I'm such a weirdo for not playing into that. So you can't, I don't think the lesson of this interview would be to say, yeah, there's some weirdo who didn't buy into that. My lesson is like, nobody has to buy into that. You can just turn it off, spend more time journaling, less time swiping, and notice what really makes you happy. That's exactly what I'm trying to say as well. I don't think that you're a weirdo at all. I think to me, you're a beacon of hope because (laughs) You, well, you, Seth, there's, there's a few people, there's, there's Rand Fishkin, that mm-hmm. you guys have made choices, which we all can make, and which to me seems like a sane choice, because the path that, at least when I did my MBA, and when you go into the corporate world, you're socialized to believe, is 
everyone's aiming for the CEO. Okay, not everyone, but that's kind of like the implicit goal. Mm -hmm. But it's okay to have a satisfying life. It doesn't have to be driven by the dollar. Yes, we all need money to live, but enough is a thing and enough is a goal. Yeah. And it's a valid goal. Right. It's a, and it's about being honest with what makes you happy, right? So I always have to add in when this subject comes up that you might actually be like Richard Branson, who if you read his autobiographies, and I think there's more than two, he sincerely just has fun making yes. money. You know, he's got a billion and wants more. Yeah. And, but he does it with a sense of fun. So to him, like if that's your internal thing, well, then don't let anybody tell you that you shouldn't be making money. Right. And on the other hand, I know some people that want to be famous and did get famous and enjoy being famous. And I'm sure there are plenty of people telling them, you know, you shouldn't do that. You could actually make more money staying out of the spotlight and be in the back end, you know, be the producer, not the star, be the investor, not the uh, media darling. And they have to just be wholeheartedly and looking inside themselves and knowing, you know what? I like being famous. It makes me happy. Yeah. And some people, the opposite, you know, they like being anonymous. And I'm sure there's somebody saying, you know, you should really step into the spotlight. And I'm like, no, I, I like being anonymous. So you yeah. just have to know in yourself what makes you happiest. It might be leaving a legacy that makes you happy. It right. might be the glamorous life in Hollywood that makes you happy. And you shouldn't feel bad about whatever true. the thing is that's driving you. That's true. I love that you said it's about getting to know yourself and what you feel will make you happy. Yeah. I mean, Warren Buffett loves to make money, but it's not the money that makes seems to make him happy. It's the making of the money that makes him happy. I mean, yeah. he says, I'm not good at giving it away. So he gets Bill Gates, who's better at giving it away to give it away. So I agree. I think that's a great point. Let's switch gears a bit and talk about content creation. Mm. You have created some really pithy and as you say, useful content. I want to know the secret. Do you write a hundred pages for every one page you publish? Because there is so much density and wisdom in your content, but it's so concise. Can you tell us what your secret is to creating this content? Thanks. That's a, that's a great compliment. First motivation, meaning I have felt the pain of reading 300 page books that should have been 20 pages. Yes. And then noticing that repeatedly, vowing not to do that. And I think that's a hard thing for us to get over. I think you need to acknowledge if you are a writer or a speaker or somebody putting stuff out into the world, you need to acknowledge the fact that in school, you were taught to do the opposite. It was like, we need a 10,000 page essay on this <laughs> subject that you have nothing to say anything about. So you'd have to come up with 10,000 empty words. <laughs> Just that you didn't want to be doing. And so we did that over and over and over again for years in school. And then you get out of school and the best thing to do is the opposite, which is to put the least number of words possible. You know, the more succinct you are, the more people will listen, the more powerful your message is if you cut out the fat around it. So first you have to have the motivation and the drive to do that because some don't, you know, uh, in contemporary society, the, the worst offenders are uh, talk radio, or, you know, let's just say radio hosts. They're paid to just fill the air with noise. Yes. Just keep talking, keep talking, doesn't matter. There's nothing to say, just keep those words moving. And I think a lot of people in business do that too. They say all these puffery, well, you know, going forward, you know, you know, all these nonsense words that mean nothing just to 
keep talking. Okay, so first the motivation to be succinct. Then how? First and foremost, I talk with friends. Like I talk a lot with friends and share daily epiphanies and insights and they share theirs with my with me. We share our insights and um, ideas and we bounce. We reflect each other's. So a friend calls me with her new epiphany of the day and we bat it back and forth a bit. And then I just notice anytime I say something that makes a friend go, ooh, oh, that's a good point. I never thought about it that way. Then I go, uh-huh, okay, noted. <laughs> you know, and then I'll go write it down. Like, oh, that impressed somebody. And that would happen when I would speak at conferences too, as I would be on stage to a room of you know, a couple hundred people. And sometimes I'd just be trying out new ideas. And you could see when I would say something that would make all heads go down to take notes. <laughs> you know, suddenly you see people do that kind of eyebrow, maybe a little frown, and then put their head down to write something down. I'm like, oh, okay, that just made people write it down. That must be good. I'll remember that one. I'll use that. So then when I'm writing, I try to just share those things. And yes, my rough draft of everything is, is everything. It's all of my thoughts on a subject. It's just, you know, the verbal dump of everything. But then when presenting something to the public, I edit it down to share only the surprising bits. That's my filter, is that I've noticed that we only really learn when we're surprised. So if I can just get rid of everything that's not surprising, that means I'm just sharing the good bits that help people learn. Have you read the book Made to Stick by Dan and Chip Heath? Yes, loved it. That talks about breaking our guessing machines. And you're yeah. right, we are predictors in a sense. It's a survival mechanism. And when we break people's guessing machines, that's when they listen. And mm, mm, I mm -hmm. was trained to write by a person called John Morrow, and he taught me that. He personally taught me to write. And he, he said, you need to think as a performer, not as a writer, if you want to be a successful writer. Wow. So I love that. You also mentioned in your conversation with Jay Klaus that you journal for at least an hour a day, sometimes three or four hours a day. I think that's one of the best ways to really dive deeper into your thoughts and become more self-aware, even if it's not for being a writer, but especially mm -hmm. if you want to be a writer. Tell me, given the artificial intelligence and all this, you know, more and more text that's being spun out through these AI machines, do you think AI is going to have any meaningful impact on writing? I'm a programmer as well. And I have, right. I'm a, I have a membership to OpenAI. So I've used their APIs and I've programmed and tweaked and had it generate text. Because at first I thought, maybe this is something that could help me. But maybe in sheer quantity, but I feel that I haven't got any new ideas from AI yet. I kind of thought that like, let me fill it with some, let me kind of seed it with some really insightful, surprising philosophical sentences. And then I'll start the first half of sentences and see what yeah. AI comes up with. And I did this over and over and over and over and over again. And I never found anything surprising mm. that made me go, ooh, that's good. Like I was really expecting that. I thought it would. But um, I get more ooh surprise moments out of a conversation with a friend. You know, if I'm sitting there working on something, I have a dozen different people I could just call and just say, hey, Tynan, what do you think of this idea? And they'll say, mm, I don't know, man. Sounds to me like you're basically saying, Rrr. and I'll go, ooh, oh my God, you're right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I get more insight from one random comment from a friend than from an hour of playing with GPT-3. Mm. So um, 
That said, I mean, I'm sure it's a useful tool. I think it would be interesting if you're stuck. I think if you were writing fiction and you weren't sure and you wanted a little random element. You know what it reminds me of? Brian Eno made some cards that called Oblique Strategies. You should look this up. Anybody who's like a creative okay. uh, creator of anything, let's say. Um, Brian Eno, E-N-O, is a legendary record producer that produced some of the uh, greatest rock albums of all time, including with, with David Bowie and U2 and Talking Heads and some good stuff. Very, very, very creative guy. Very thoughtful. I think I like his ideas about music even more than I like his music. And so one thing he did years ago is he made a deck of cards that he called Oblique Strategies. And on each card was a directive saying like, cut a common thread. And the next card would be saying, um, reverse it. And another card would be saying, uh, get rid of something that seems necessary right now. The idea was when he was producing a record and he felt stuck and wasn't sure what to do, he'd shuffle the cards, pull one out, and the game was to follow its instruction no matter what, even if that felt wrong. So then he would cut out the drums or something like yeah. that, <laughs> remove the lead vocal, something that seems necessary or whatever the cards told him to do. So I could see AI being a random influence like that. Mm -hmm. To give you some random ideas if you're feeling stuck. When people talk about it replacing writers, well, then I think if you can be replaced by AI, then you probably should be. You should find something else that is more of your unique contribution in the world. Right. That's interesting. Speaking of cards, I don't know if you've seen this, but I got this when I bought Seth's book, The Practice. And mm. it's got these really cool cards. I love it. It's got these snippets. You know, if you knew you were sure to fail, then what would you do? You're I haven't not the seen boss, this. but you're wow. in charge. It's really cool. You should get him. I, I recommend him. You can buy it. Oh, I, at one stage, he was selling it with a book. All criticism is not the same. Attitudes are skills and so on. And there's another wow. little thing called Storyteller Tactics. I just bought these. And these are cards that I'm not sure where you can buy them. I'll, I'll, I'll send you the details later. But they've, they've got these various ways to tell stories. And then I've got another one for – they've got different kinds of tactics. This is called – Workshop tactics. So yeah, cards are cards are pretty cool. I, I love cards. It makes you, it forces you out of your mental patterns, which patterns. is wonderful. Yeah, patterns. Yeah. So, tell me, Derek, in your book, How to Live, which I've got right here. I've got all the goodies. I love this book. Initially, I I have to say I found it confounding, but it definitely <laughs> broke my guessing machine. It was surprising, and I I remember sending you an email about it, saying, "Hey, man, I kind of." don't quite get what you're saying here. And then you, and then I said, wait a minute, are you saying that the, the point of the book is there is no one way to live? And you're like, you got it. So that said, by the way, that's why the book is called 27 Conflicting Answers and One Weird Conclusion. And it's a nice mm -hmm. and thin, concise book, like everything Derek Sivers, you know, concise. I love it. I, I love the fact that you're not about just spouting 300 pages of stuff that could have been done <laughs> in yeah. 30 pages. So in your book, How to Live, you talk about pursuing pain. Now, this is something that people don't talk about enough, and I think it's very important. You say, and I don't quote exactly, but you say, everything good comes from some kind of pain. The pain of practice leads to mastery. If you avoid pain, you avoid improvement. Now, we see all, or I see all this promotion about million dollars overnight, kind of some version of that. And there's so many versions of that BS. But the truth is, 
in every instance, when I've seen somebody who's achieved anything meaningful, whether it's financial or not, they have endured various kinds of pain. As a guy called John McGrath, the founder of McGrath Real Estate, said to me in episode 122, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. And most people just see the overnight part. Mm. When you started CD Baby, I think in the conversation with Jay Klaus, you said you were working 14 hours, a, 12 hours a day, seven days a week or something like yeah. that for like three years. It, you didn't just wake up one day and sell it for 22 million. You had to work hard. We don't talk enough about that. Can you tell us a bit about your take on it? Yeah, it might not be the answer um, you want, but... I want to hear your answer. I don't have sure. any preconceived notions. My honest answer is, um, I don't remember any hardship. I don't, I feel like there was none except for maybe one bit of drama with my employees about a year before I left the company. It was actually really the reason I left the company is because things got full of drama, but the, the previous nine years. Yeah. I mean, I, I basically worked from 7am to midnight, seven days a week for mostly 10 years. And I loved it. I loved it. I was having a blast. I mean, there's a reason I would like bounce out of bed, quickly throw on some clothes, dash into the office, and I'd be excited to like be in there like, all right, back at it. Okay, today I'm going to make this work. I'm going to do such and such and such. And or I just, I really enjoyed doing the emails and like answering people's questions. They were like little, it was like getting potato chips, this little challenge to answer these things and to get some new ideas from customers on what they're asking for, what they say would really help them. Um... I was learning programming along the way. I wasn't a programmer at first. I learned out of necessity. So I'd say, okay, there's got to be a way I can get the database to show me who bought this, but not that, but not in this, but in the, but only if it's been 10 days since they last bought something. And I would like make this a challenge to myself to make this SQL query that could do what I wanted. I found it a challenge to build systems that could automate things we were doing manually. You know, it was just me and three people at first, and, and those three people were completely swamped, but I couldn't really hire, afford to hire a fourth person. I'm like, I'm going to sit here and work with you today. And I'd say, ah, oh, okay, there's a lot of repetition in this. There's got to be a way I can automate that. So that's really this tone of excitement you hear in my voice. That was me for 10 years. That's me yeah. 7 a.m. to midnight for 10 years. Like, okay, how can I do this? Mm. Or even like, I'm going to go to this conference and how can I knock it out of the park? They've asked me to speak at this conference. I don't want to just get up there and go like, mm, well, yeah, you know, music business is tough. I want to get up there. Like, I want to inspire these musicians to show them that they can emancipate themselves from the uh, machine. And so I'd give that as a challenge to myself and I'd write these articles to try to help musicians. That's my purple book called uh, Your Music and People is yes. mostly articles I wrote for musicians. It ends up being about marketing. It was written to musicians, but you can read it metaphorically. It's about the generosity of marketing in general, except for that little bit of drama near the end, there was no hardship. It was just fun. And so I, I actually constantly wrestle with this definition of work, right? Like I tell my kid, sorry, I need to work, but really it's play. Yeah. And I tell my friends that too. Like it's, it's stuff when they say, well, what are you working on? I'm just like, whatever I feel like. What I call work is basically me time. It means whether I'm programming or I'm writing, I'm editing something, I'm learning something new, I'm reading a book that, you know, not a fiction book, but something I'm going to apply to my life. This is all my quote unquote work. This is what I love the best. 10 years of CD Baby was me just having a blast for almost all of it. Now so there's the a few years before. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, you know, I'll just finish to say the few years before I started CD Baby, there was some hard work in there. There was a lot of like struggle 
to try, try to get my music into the New York City music scene. And there were a lot of like constantly locked doors and uphill battles. But even that, like I said, about like driving five hours to go to a gig that pays $300, I had a deep purpose. I was doing it for the experience. I was getting better. I was toughening myself. I was learning more and getting paid. So it was hard, but even that, I, I loved it. So a lot of this comes back to framing, right? Because I'm sure you've heard the phrase, if you love what you do, you'll never work another day in your life. <laughs> right. I do sound like that, don't I? No, but I mean, that's true. I think that's totally true. It's framing. But then what did you mean when you said the thing about pursue pain? Because ah. you say everything good comes from some kind of pain. The yeah. pain of practice leads to mastery. If you avoid pain, you avoid improvement. I mean, for me, even though I love what I do, and I have for the last 10 years, sometimes for me, the pain is in the form of repetition or boredom. Mm -hmm. I feel like, oh, I want to do something different today. I don't want to do the editing today. It feels like a chore, man. I've got to edit this whole hour and a half long video. I've tried outsourcing the editing many times, but it's like editing your own book. Mm. You can outsource it. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but it doesn't always express it the way you want it expressed. So mm -hmm. often, not always, I'll edit it myself. Like I'm going to edit this interview myself because this is so important to me. Tell us about what you meant by that when you said you must pursue pain. To me, that's applicable in so many parts of life. So I say pain, but it means I know some people that are professional weightlifters and they actually enjoy it. They, yeah, it's the difference between deep happy and shallow happy. Uh -huh. Shallow happy is eating an ice cream. Deep happy is skipping the ice cream and going to the gym. And yes, lifting 120 kilos over your head hurts like hell, but you did it and you get the deeper satisfaction of having done it and you're proud of yourself for skipping the ice cream. You could say that was pain, but also a deeper happiness. In fact, yes. I think that it might even be the, the definition of deep happy to me is when you pursue something difficult and you achieve it, that's a deeper satisfaction than pursuing something easy. Right. So, so when you did those yeah. 10 years at CD Baby, that was deep happy, right? Yeah. So like, even when I said like, all right, I'm excited to like figure out this SQL query, for example, that's like somebody being excited to go to the gym. Like, yes, the actual lifting is going to hurt. And yes, when I was sitting there for hours trying to figure out like how to get the web server in Linux to do such and such. And how do I get this SQL query? It was a lot of like, I'm still not working. But then four hours of frustration followed by like, oh my God, oh my God, it works. I did it. It's like, now I know how, you know, I poured through the manual for hours yes. to learn how and I did it. Yeah. You could say that those are four painful hours, but by the way, so the thing I was talking about in how to live too, was also like the pain of working through a problem in your relationship in your personal relationships, instead of giving up and walking away. Right. It's also referring to practice. You know, the, the best musicians sound terrible in practice. When a bad musician is practicing, you just hear them basically play. And that's why they're not getting better. When you hear a great musician practice, what you hear is, you know, <laughs> And they go, ah, <laughs> yeah, damn, you know, like right. that's, if you listen to, I went to Berkeley College of Music, right? So, I mean, I've listened in to great musicians practicing and it's 
a lot of lot a lot of mistakes and pain and trying hard to get that fingering just right and slowing it down and getting it better and like ugh. and scales they, you've got to do scales and scales yes and the arpeggios and the tough you know finger combinations but then they get it and it's a deeper joy so you could say yeah if you were to avoid that pain then you would never get better at your instrument and i think people do that in everything language learning if you were to just kind of casually use Duolingo 10 minutes a day, you're not really going to learn the language. If you put yourself through the pain of uh, going to italki.com and forcing yourself to do a um, conversation with a native speaker and requesting that they don't speak English with you, but only use the new language that you're learning, it's a really painful 20 minutes or 30 minutes, but that's going to teach you better than two hours of Duolingo. You know? And that's deep happy. Yeah, hopefully. But I mean, the, the, the bigger point to me, like, since you asked about the pain chapter of how to live, I was talking about that kind of stuff, because I think it applies everywhere. The pain of really learning a new concept, like struggling with a book that's about a concept that's way over your head, but you force yourself to read it slowly and read it twice and really get it. Learning programming, learning another language, addressing interpersonal problems with others, addressing personal problems inside yourself. These things can all be really hard, but that's where the good stuff is. You, I'm sure, would have gone through some challenging times when you were starting CD Baby, or maybe you didn't because you were I a didn't. professional musician. What's your advice to an entrepreneur who is trying to get that escape velocity where mm -hmm. they have a certain runway by which time they have to either make the business work or they have to go back to the day job? Mm. Well, I mean, first I advise usually not quitting the day job until the other thing is supporting you. To me, that, I don't know if you know the, the Tarzan metaphor, is that when Tarzan is swinging through the jungle on the vines, the way that you swing through the jungle on vines is you, you grab the next vine. Once it's holding your weight, that's when you let go of the previous vine. Right. You, know, you don't let go of the previous thing until the next one is supporting you. So I usually don't advise making a leap where you're going to be screwed if you don't make a ton of money fast, right? But that's me. I mean, I think it's you and I both admire Seth Godin, and I love his advice of just get one paying customer. Yep. Like, please one person, get one person happy to open their wallet to you. And once you've done that, you can talk with them, get to know them, ask how else you can help them, ask how else to improve. And in the conversation with them, think of how you could systemize what they're asking you to do. And then you do it for a second person, and then you do it for a third person. And so instead of thinking, how can I make a million dollars quick? First, I think, well, first, just like aim to make a thousand dollars. And then after you've made a thousand dollars, think about now, how can I make ten thousand dollars? And after you've made ten thousand, think about how to make fifty thousand. I think if you start thinking in these millions and billions type terms from the beginning, it can really just be a lot of wanky daydreaming. Yeah. Whereas if you just keep your focus on helping people in front of you, that'll keep you improving and being useful to others. Yeah, did you hear there's a difference there? If you're thinking, how can I make a million dollars? That's still keeping the focus on you. Yeah. If what you're thinking is, how can I help more people? Then that's going to keep the focus on them. And that's like the Tao of business, that by keeping the focus on them, not you, you're probably going to end up doing better than if you were asking yourself, how can I make a million dollars? How do you approach a new prospective customer if you haven't had any previous contact with them and extend and offer to help them without them feeling like you're trying to sell them something. Mm. I've only done it for people I know already. Ah, uh, okay. so, interesting. Like I, yeah, being a musician in New York City, I would ask my musician friends how I could help. 
right so you've um, already got the trust built okay yeah yeah by the way have you read the book delivering happiness no everybody said i should oh dude I it, recommend it sounded it. to me like it was preaching to the converted you know it is it is exactly what you've been saying so it's it's just for you i guess it would be a bit of an echo chamber it was very sad how his life oh, ended yeah. but yeah. uh it's a it's a book that is all about true generosity in your book hell yeah or no you say if i'm not saying hell yeah about something I say no. Sounds great, but easier said than done. Any tips on how we can do that? Well, first you got to remember that it's a tool for a specific situation, like any tool in the toolbox. It's not meant to be used for everything in the house. Uh, so, hell yeah or no, a strategy to use when you are overwhelmed with opportunity, when everybody wants a piece of you, everybody's throwing everything your way, and everybody wants you. You have to say hell yeah or no to basically raise the bar all the way to the top so that you only say yes to a few things and then you have the time because you've said no to everything else you have the time to knock it out of the park as they say for those very few things that you say yes to so first you just got to know when to use the strategy for example i i get emails sometimes from people that are straight out of college and they read my book hell yeah or no and they say hey i loved your book and I'm just out of college. I'm just saying no to everything. And I say, no, 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 wait, that's the wrong strategy. Like you're in a different situation, man. Like right now you need to say yes to everything. Say yes to everything you can. And only later when you're overwhelmed with opportunities, that's when you need to raise the bar up and not say yes to all the new opportunities coming your way, but say no to almost all of them. It's a strategy for a very specific purpose. That's very helpful. Derek, you have such a refreshing approach to life. I mean, every time I read your content, I feel a little bit freer from the shackles of these mental models that have been imposed on me through my life, especially that this book, How to Live. I recommend it to everybody. I recommend listening to the audiobook. I want to be respectful of time. I could talk to you forever, man, but I, I, I realize that you need to go. Just before you do, can you tell us what's important to you in your life right now and why? Mm journaling reflecting i think all my learning comes from reflecting i think when we read a book or watch a video or listen to a podcast it's just input but we're not really learning we don't really learn anything until we have time to reflect and reflect on how you can apply that new incoming information into your own life so to me reflecting is super important and then reading you know if you have the time to reflect on it and in the journaling it's it's asking myself questions and then most importantly questioning my answers meaning like i don't doubt i mean i i don't trust myself i doubt myself i doubt everything i say every time i think i have the answer to something i i like to challenge it and question it and doubt it and i find that so useful to get yourself out of mental habits what did you call them before practices i forget what you had a good word for it like your 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 common mental routines um, yeah, I'm constantly forcing myself to look for different perspectives on anything. Looking at all the things you're doing in life, saying, why am I doing this? Like, what's the real reason? And then questioning that, going, is that the real reason? So if somebody were to move the magic wand and just provide me that, I would stop doing this other thing that I'm doing to get it? No, I wouldn't. Hmm, so what am I, what's the real reason I'm doing it then? And then no matter what you say, you doubt yourself and challenge those. Yeah, that's probably the most important thing. Besides the obvious, I love my kid and we have a you know i spend probably at least 40 sometimes up to 100 hours a week wow. just one-on-one -on -one with me and my son I, i'd spend way more time doing that than i do 
writing or programming or working or anything else you see me do, I spend wow. way more time just with me and my son. Is this because you're financially independent now? Yeah, but I think I, I did it that way on purpose. Ever since I was a teenager, I remember learning that John Lennon, when he was at the height of Beatlemania, he had his first son, Julian Lennon, but didn't have any time to give him. So Julian Lennon grew up very neglected by his dad and didn't mm. get to know his dad. So when he was 35 and he and Yoko had his son, Sean, he said, okay, I'm doing it right this time. He told his manager, like, hold all calls. I'm say no to everything. No, for five years, I'm out. I'm taking a sabbatical. Yep. And for five years, he was a full-time dad for his yep. son's first five years of life. And I remember even as a teenager learning that going, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Like, if I have a kid someday, I'm going to like just set things up. Even if I have almost no money, I'll just find a way. Yeah. Even if it means I'm going to be house-sitting, staying at somebody's house for free or something so that I can just be a full-time dad give my kid the full attention because i just think that's so crucial mm. in those early years so i mean yeah luckily for me i sold my company but i think even if i hadn't i would have just found a way to say all right world <laughs> like i have a kid now this is obviously way more important than anything else your son is very fortunate me too do you write with seo in mind by the way no <laughs> <laughs> i don't care one bit about seo None. I don't expect anybody to find me in a stupid search. I don't even use search engines. I hate that whole world. SEO. To me, it's like, you know, kind of like your question about AI. Like, if you're doing something that AI can replace, then, you know, it should replace you. And to me, it's like, if you're doing something where the only way people can find you is because you're doing SEO, well, then you really should be doing something better with your life. I, I Zero interest in SEO. Sorry if that's uh, condescending to me. No, no, no. That's <laughs> good. that's very interesting. I'm sort of pleasantly surprised by the answer, but <laughs> I appreciate that. It's I'm going to think about that a bit more because I'm kind of a little bit obsessed with it. But now I'm questioning. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you know, because it it actually affects the way I write because mm. it's constantly in the back of my mind saying, "Well, is this SEO optimized?" and and the whole uh, creative process gets hijacked, and it's kind of driving me a bit yeah. nuts. So no, to me, it's to like your perspective. I, I just figure anything I'm writing or creating, I try to have so many like unique insights that the people it does reach, whether it's just a hundred people now, but the people that are already kind of tuned into what I'm saying that I want it to be so good that they go like, oh my God, you have to hear this. And then they tell their friends, that's what I'm optimized for. What acronym could we make that? RO, referral optimization. <laughs> uh, I O yeah. insight optimization, you know, insight engine optimization. But now I just figure that anybody just searching the web for something is just searching for like generic, you know, teacup or glasses or USB connectors. And I don't expect them to be trying to find me. How do people find out more about you, Derek? Oh, you know that answer. <laughs> just go to my, my website is sive.rs and everything is there. I'm not a big fan of social media for the, the reason that we mentioned earlier about incentives. When you have investors, their incentives are for you to just to make a lot of money, no matter who you need to screw to do it. Mm. And um, I find that with social media sites is I feel that their incentives are not aligned with mine. Their incentives are to try to get me addicted and to try to get you addicted. And I don't want my friends to be addicted to things. So I don't, I try to avoid putting anything of value on any social media because I think that would enable my friend's addiction. But there's so. amazing things of value on that site because correct me if I'm wrong, but if I go S-I-V-E dot R-S slash A and scroll down, I get access to the 
audiobook in bits and pieces, which I can listen to any time, correct? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Most of my books are for free on my website. That is the so generous, I, Derek. Thank the you. The only one that I didn't do that to was for How to Live, because How to Live has to be or should be consumed as a book. I didn't want just one chapter of it to be uh, misinterpreted on its own. So maybe someday I'll just let people misinterpret it and put it out there for free. But um, but yeah, SIVE.RS, basically everything I do is on that site. And if you are somebody that listened all the way to the end of this interview, well then, hell yeah, you should introduce yourself and send me an email and say hello. And yeah, that's, that's honestly the main reason I do these podcasts is I love the people that I meet from doing them when people hear it and introduce themselves to me. So that's my favorite part. Send me an email and I reply to everyone. Thank you so much for being on, Derek. This podcast will be on episode 222, so productive. 222, nice. Slash 222. Yeah, thanks, Ash. I'll hope to see you in the next Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today? 